What's up, everybody? I'm JJ John J. Stramski. And I'm Jason Goff. And if you haven't heard, The Ringer has gone local. I'm bringing the fire. I'm bringing the rain from the Big Apple with my show, New York, New York. And I'm repping Chi-Town with my new show, The Full Go on All Things Chicago. We've got episodes three nights a week with all the reaction to the local teams and guests. Plus bonus episodes around all the big games and storylines. So whether you're uptown, downtown, in the burbs, or a transplant. Make sure you follow New York, New York, and The Full Go on Spotify or wherever you get your podcast. It's the Ringer Gambling Show, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back, and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like 3-Minute Markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus, and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 100Gambler. Visit rg-help.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Ringer Gambling Show. I'm joined today by Chris Vernon to break down everything that we saw yesterday. And Chris, yesterday's slate was laid out perfectly. We had a great distribution of only six games that kicked off early and four games that were in the late slot. A great distribution. The problem was not very much competition. There was only one game that finished within one score. It wasn't the most competitive of weeks, and it was another week where we didn't see any upsets, anything that shocked the ecosystem uh, with regard to big dogs coming in and winning a game, and that's something that we've noticed this season overall. But what did you think of the action yesterday? Well, the first thing that stood out was that there were six teams on a bye, which was a fantasy football disaster and I don't really know how this all happened because you have the Bills, the Cowboys and the Chargers which are three of the most fun teams to watch they were all off and then you had the Jags, the Vikings and the Steelers so you had six total buys this weekend Warren and I mean the most any there are any other week it's like between two and four teams and it was kind of odd just even who the teams were because how, how did six teams have a bye and one of them's not the Dolphins? They're the only team that didn't catch a bye after they had to play the London game. I mean, you're going to have, you know. Well, so I, I did I did some research on that, actually, because I liked the Dolphins and took the Dolphins plus three buying the hook. And that ended up being a good move to make since they only lost by two points. But I went back and looked and I thought that that line was getting overinflated towards the Atlanta Falcons because of this whole London rest issue. Yep. And when you go back and look, um, obviously, yes, the Falcons were off of a week by and the Dolphins played in London last week. Um, but that's happened several other times. In fact, three times I saw it happen before where a team did not take a bye the week after a London game and played the next week at home. 
It happened to the Dolphins in 2017. They won outright as a home underdog. It happened to the Colts in 2016. They also won the game and covered the spread at home. The Ravens were the only team in 2017. They were a three-point home dog after London and lost the game outright by more than three points. So it had happened. Like People are out there talking about, well, this has never happened before. This is unprecedented. Why would they ever do that? Well, it happened three times, and those teams were two and one against the spread, and those two teams won the game outright. And lo and behold, Miami Dolphins, even though they didn't play a perfect game, were actually leading that game late in the fourth quarter. It took a last-minute drive in some horrific defense. I know we're going to talk later about Brian Flores, but I don't know what they're doing, how they're letting Kyle Pitts beat them, albeit he made a couple of great catches, but it took a last-second drive by the Atlanta Falcons to come back and win that game. Yeah. Um, the other thing was this has been a good run for the public, as they say. Um, according to David Purdom's article this morning, three weeks in a row, the public's done well. And that's because uh, there haven't been many upsets. Uh, there have been none of an underdog of seven or more that has won a game outright. And according to the Nevada gaming control records, the sports books there have suffered a net loss on football over a month during the NFL regular season, only 11 times. And the last time was November of 2011. So it's been 10 years since there's been a net loss. Now, again, as we said last week, nobody's crying poor for sports books, but it is fascinating the way this is playing out because we talked last week, we predicted that there were going to be some mega inflated lines. Um, there were, and it made absolutely no difference, right? They put a huge number up on the Bucks. The Bucks still stomped the Bears. They put a huge number up on the Cardinals. They still stomped the Houston Texans. And so the, the question becomes, I think, as we go forward, like, is this the year we get the insane lines? Like, are they just going to get tired of this? Where they say, all right, fine. We're going to, next time we have Cardinals, uh, Texans, we're going to make the damn thing 28 points. <laughs> so, because you're not, you're not beating us like this. Well, you know what's crazy? You know what's crazy about that Cardinals game? So the line was Sunday morning, 18, 18 and a half. And money continued to pour in on the Arizona Cardinals. That line was bet up to 19, to 19 and a half, to 20, to 20 and a half. <laughs> I saw that thing close at 20 and a half. And, and, and they jumped out to a, what was it? A five to nothing lead. Houston was up five to nothing, I believe. And the, the amount of points that Arizona would have to come back and score without the Texans scoring again just to cover the spread was ridiculous, and they end up doing it. They win the game 31-5. to uh, Houston doesn't score another point. I mean, David Culley, this team, there are so many situations. We talked about it in the with last week on the show. There are so many situations that are plus EV that they should be going for it on fourth down, and they just don't give a shit until it's the fourth quarter. Once it's the fourth quarter, they'll start going for it on a couple of these things, uh, on a couple of these situations. Prior to that, they're just punting the ball. You know, they're doing the opposite of what they're doing up in Detroit, where they just came out from the jump. Like, we're big underdogs. This is the only way to win. We're going to onside kick it. We're going to fake punt it. 
We're going to um, do whatever it takes to try to score some points or early here. And, and they too got up on the Rams and still could not get it done. But one of the things that I noticed, Chris, and we talked about this on the show with uh, House on Fridays, and that is if you're betting these dogs that are less than seven points, go ahead and dabble on the money line because it's in your best interest to do so. And we saw that payoff a lot. We, we saw the Cincinnati Bengals catching six and a half points. They covered and obviously won the game outright. The Indianapolis Colts catching four points, won the game outright. The Tennessee Titans catching three and a half to four points, uh, won the game outright. The New York Giants catching three points, won the game outright. It was only the Philadelphia Eagles and the Denver Broncos who uh, were short favorites, uh, sorry, short dogs that did not at least cover the spread. Um, And obviously neither of those teams won the game outright. Um, So that, that goes to show you that you should be putting a little bit on the money line of these dogs of less than six points when you do bet them ATS. But these dogs of seven plus points, what'd they go, Chris? I think uh, one and five, one out of five uh, covered the spread. The Jets didn't cover, Washington didn't cover, the Washington should have. Chicago didn't cover and Houston didn't cover. So these dogs of seven plus points are just not getting it done, not only outright, but not even ATS. All right, let's talk about some of those that flipped the script on the spread. And one of the huge ones was that early Titans-Chiefs game. And this was one of those where the Titans got out to this massive lead and it's like, all right, is this, is this like the last couple of years where the chiefs can come storming back with this tsunami of scoring? And and it just, it never took place. Of course it ends with Patrick Mahomes limping off the field, which was not a great look either. Um, Is this, how was that? How did you watch that play? How was that not a, uh, a penalty? The guy, hit Mahomes right in the face with his I mean, knee. I mean, isn't was, that, uh, aren't you not supposed to be able to like do that to a quarterback? But yeah, it's, Je- it's Jeffrey Simmons, right? I think Jeffrey so. Jeffrey Simmons, yeah, yeah, yeah. Seemed a little crazy that that wasn't, wasn't yeah, uh, that was, uh, As much as they protect some guys from just getting touched, he got murdered. Um, is that more about the Chiefs or more about the Titans? What happened there? Well, it's about the Chiefs on both sides of the football. Um, we can say that the... Chiefs looked a little bit better defensively if we want to. I mean, overall, they held uh, Derrick Henry, which, I mean, it just couldn't keep going, right? He couldn't keep posting these ridiculous numbers, but he only averaged three yards per carry. His longest rushing attempt was only 11. They got back Chris Jones on the defensive side of the football and were able to bottle up Derrick Henry a little bit. But look at what the Titans did from a production standpoint. This is their; These are all their drives in the first half. 75-yard touchdown drive. 97-yard touchdown drive, 60-yard field goal drive, 46-yard touchdown drive, and then a a field goal at the end of the half off of a Kansas City Chiefs fumble. They didn't punt the ball. They were scoring a ton of touchdowns, and they won the game. It's, It's crazy to say this. They won the game going away comfortably despite not scoring a single point in the second half. How does that happen against Patrick Mahomes? We've seen that team, the Kansas City Chiefs, time and time again, come back in games when they are down. They're down seven points. They're down 10 points. They're down 13 points. They're down 14 points in the first half of games and roar back to either make it competitive or win. And here we see the Tennessee Titans 
held scoreless in the second half, and it doesn't even matter. They still win the game by nearly 20 points because Kansas City is only putting up two field goals. These are the Chiefs' drives in the first half. 20 yards, punt. 10 yards, punt. No yards, interception. 23 yards, fumble. Negative one yard, end to half on a, I guess it was a kneel down. This is what they're gaining. Their longest drive of the game didn't come until Patrick Mahomes was KO'd out of that football game. The longest drive of the first half, net yards, 23 yards by them. 23 yards, their longest drive. They had a 10-yard penalty, so uh, 33 offensive yards. That's it. That's it. Their last line of scrimmage, the Kansas City Chiefs did not leave their own 45 the entire first half. They did not get beyond their own 45. They did not enter Tennessee territory once in the first half. This is not just the Titans defense. The tight, I mean, look the game before the Buffalo Bills exploited the Titans defense. What was shocking to me is that this Titans defense was ravaged with injuries in the secondary. It was their ability to get pressure on Patrick Mahomes up front and make him a little bit uncomfortable. And then it was just Patrick Mahomes in this passing attack. They aren't throwing the ball down the field. If you look at this offensive uh, performance, Patrick Mahomes' completion percentage above expectation was negative 8.9%. It means he was throwing the ball. I mean, his, his, his expected completion percentage on his passes was 66%, but he only completed 57% of them. It was the worst completion percentage above expectation of any quarterback in the NFL this past game. His well, completed- hey, hold on now. Let me, I'm, I'm not going to make excuses for Mahomes because he's doing too much. He's running for his life, Warren. The reason they don't, the reason they don't throw it down the field and the reason he's not completing as much is because he's doing it off one leg like 90% of the time in that game. I mean, they were on his ass. Their offensive line couldn't stop anybody. Yeah, they're off. They were getting a lot of pressure. Absolutely. His completed air yards, and this has been a problem for them for a little while now, that explosive pass down the field. Defenses are just playing them differently. They're forcing them to dink and dunk. And what Mahomes likes to do is push the ball down the field more. Mahomes doesn't want to stand in the pocket, never scramble, just deliver strikes left and right. He wants to kind of extend plays. He wants to make things happen. Um, You know, this is really fascinating that you say that because this happened, I don't know, I can't remember what game it was. I can't remember the the Green Bay game, but they were playing uh, one of the night games and it was the Manning cast and Peyton Manning spoke about this and he said, you know, when you're younger, you look at this and you keep on wanting to force stuff down the field and that's exactly what they're trying to do. They're trying to get you. They want you to throw the ball down the field. When you get a little bit older, you understand, all right, this is how the defense is set up. If this is what you're going to give us, then we're just going to do it the entire night. I, I'm, I'm not impatient. I will have my patience and that in the particular game that he was analyzing, this is why that manic cast can be so good sometimes because yeah. I've thought about this a lot. It was Aaron Rodgers, and he said, that's fine. And you can go back and look. It was the Aaron Jones game. Aaron Jones had like 200 something yards in the game. He said, fine, I'll throw it down to Aaron Jones every damn time. If you don't want me to throw it down the field to Devontae Adams, if you don't want me to throw it down the field, then I, we will dink and dunk and we'll throw underneath and I'll throw this, you know, this little route to Aaron Jones and we'll just, we'll, we'll stomp you. 
But it takes a patience. It takes a discipline to do that, right? It, ta- it takes an adjustment from the offense in general to, to look at how defenses are playing you. The three teams up to last week, I don't have data through last week's games yet, but the three teams that on early downs in the first three quarters had the lightest box counts against them, the lightest box counts against them were Kansas City Chiefs, Buffalo Bills, and the Philadelphia Eagles. What mm. does that mean, lightest box counts? It means that the defense has few defenders inside the box to try to stop your run plays. They are sitting back in coverage. They have an extra guy in coverage than typical. So the typical box is a seven-man box. You only have six or fewer guys in the box against those three quarterbacks, and you're putting guys in coverage. It does make it more difficult to throw the ball down the field with more men in coverage. They're basically daring you to try to run the football. Now, what's ironic, and we'll talk about Jalen Hurts momentarily, but you know, you, you would expect defenses to make those adjustments against Patrick Mahomes and Josh Allen, right? They don't want those guys throwing the ball down the field as much. But Jalen Hurts, but it's the way that the teams are also calling their plays that defenses then begin, smart defenses begin to adjust. They say, look, you guys don't want to pass you, or you don't want to run. You're passing at one of the highest rates in the NFL. Your run game's not very good. We're going to dare you to run. The Chiefs could not run the football even though I'm guessing that the box counts were extremely light. When I look back at this box score uh, momentarily, I'm going to pull it up here with the Kansas City Chiefs and what they were doing on the ground. I believe that their running backs only had, let's see, Darrell Williams only had five rushing attempts the entire game, averaged four yards per carry, and that was it. No other running back had a single attempt other than Williams in the game, five in total. Obviously, on the other side of the ball, you had Derrick Henry. He had 29. He's their engine of that offense. Uh, but the I- irony there is that they were the Titans were getting production on critical downs, high leverage downs, third downs with Ryan Tannehill, completing balls through the air against the secondary. The Chiefs did a good job of limiting Derrick Henry on early downs. Even if you look just at the first half of the game, they were doing a pretty good job. It was a lot of third down passes by Ryan Tannehill that were producing the gains or the scores that they needed to build this lead. But absolutely, there's going to need to be adjustments made. It's it's surprising that there haven't been these adjustments made quicker. But if the defenses are going to play light boxes against Mahomes and going to take away that deep ball over the top and force you to throw the ball short, you need to embrace that. You've got to figure out a better way to run the football against a light box. If you can't, if, if they're daring you to run, you need to figure out a way to be productive, at least when you do run the football. You can't average four yards a carry when you're running into a light box with your running back. And number two, you've got to figure out a way to throw the ball short, embrace a lot of these quick passing concepts, um, and find some edges against the defense. There are rules constructs that are in place that do still benefit offenses, but it's it's just a challenge. The Chiefs need to work through it and figure out a way to make some adjustments. After the Titans have now beaten Buffalo and Kansas City back-to-back weeks, do we need to start looking at them differently as a contender in the AFC? Well, I mean, we this does translate into some discussion about the Indianapolis Colts and how I expected the Colts to get back on track here and to have a legitimate shot at potentially uh, winning this division. And everybody wrote the Colts off for dead and Carson Wentz is terrible. And, uh, and, and I said before the season even started, 
after the first few games of the Indianapolis Colts, they're going to get back on track. Frank Reich has done this every single year. They don't win their games at the beginning of the season. They struggle. They had some injuries. They're going to get back on track, start betting on the Colts after this rough stretch happens. I said that before the fucking season even started, Chris. And so the Colts are coming along, but I was sort of hoping that the Titans would start to slow down a little bit, right? I was, I didn't expect necessarily that the Titans would beat the Bills and the Chiefs in back-to-back weeks. And so I was anticipating a little bit, hey, maybe the Colts could even get back into this division, win this division. Maybe we could bet against the Titans a little bit. Like it's, it's, it's crazy the way that these Titans are winning their games because their defense is doing just enough, even though it's not a good defense. And then their offense is doing just enough. That is it. That is an above average offense, but, um, they're not as good as they were last year offensively. Um, and their defense, I couldn't even say, especially in current state, isn't as good as it was last year, but they're getting these games. They, they're getting these wins. They're stacking these wins against very difficult opponents. Very impressive for them to be able to do that. So um, I do think the Colts are going to come along, but they might be looking at uh, having to battle for a wild card spot. And the wild card race in the AFC is going to be murderous, man. That's well, going to be a brutal luckily, race. Luckily, we will get to find out between those two teams <laughs> because the, tit- the Titans play the Colts coming up this weekend. Let me ask you about another division, which is kind of shocking at this point in the season when we look up and we see the Bengals who have, you know, they have put it on the Steelers and the Ravens now. Um, That was a monster win yesterday uh, for the Bengals. Everybody had them slotted behind the Ravens, behind the Browns, behind the Steelers in that division. But what do we make of what the Bengals are right now and the fact that they, as a, you know, decently significant underdog, went, that felt like a statement. It did. They went and they just, they trashed the Ravens, Warren. Oh, yeah. That was an absolute statement. That was, um, we are going to, the, the most impressive part about that game, to me at least, was the Cincinnati Bengals start out and get up on the scoreboard and then they fall behind and then they come back. The The ability for them to come back and say, yeah, we took your best punch, but we're still better than you. And then just to stomp it into the ground on the road in Baltimore, extremely impressive. And this was a joint effort, offense and defense. The Cincinnati Bengals offense on the season was number three in yards per pass attempt. But they really hadn't played any good defenses. They played the 30th ranked schedule of opposing defenses against yards per pass attempt on average. They The Bengals were a very explosive passing offense. They averaged the ninth most explo- highest rate of explosive pass plays. But they really hadn't played any defenses that were great at stopping explosive passes. Um but they had a lot of success in this game against the Baltimore Ravens, who just a week before completely limited the LA Chargers and prevented those explosive passes. The Bengals were able to get those in there. The, but on the other side of the ball, this was, you know, the, the, the Bengals were this defense that didn't pl- really play a lot of good offenses. You know, they ranked fifth in defensive efficiency, but that came against the fifth easiest schedule of opposing offenses. Uh, they ranked really good against the run, 
but what great rushing attacks had they played so far in the season? So there were a lot of question marks about this team. And they forced Baltimore into 16 third down attempts. Baltimore averaged 8.8 yards to go on those third down attempts and thus converted only 31% of them. I mean, really great early down defense by the uh, Cincinnati Bengals to force the Ravens into so many third downs. And then because they had so many yards to go, it's difficult to convert. The, for people listening at home, the single biggest driver as to whether or not you're going to convert your third downs in a game is what your average yards to go on third down are, which is why early downs is so important. If you could bypass third downs, piece of cake, you don't have to convert them. If you can't bypass third downs, what is your yards to go on these third downs? Only a couple teams averaged more than 8.8 that the Baltimore Ravens did. Um, the other interesting part about this game, the Bengals on early downs in the first half of games prior to this game, we're only 56% pass. That was right above the NFL average. They they tended to be a little bit more conservative. They had a, a higher run rate than the NFL average in a lot of different situations when you factor in third quarter, et cetera. But uh, right around average in the first half, they went 70% pass against the Baltimore Ravens here. They were trying to attack that secondary and they were getting explosive plays. They averaged 9.3 yards per pass attempt on those passes. And it's important that they were passing the ball here because if they relied more on the run, Chris, those runs averaged only 29% success and 2.6 yards per carry. So those early down runs at the beginning of the game were not being productive enough. So they put the ball in Joe Burrow's hands. They put up that offensive line to create a wall and said, you could try to blitz Joe Burrow. We're going to deal with it. And he was chucking the ball down the field, short, medium, long, and having success. Um, really impressive job by Joe Burrow and that offensive line. And they needed to pass the ball against this defense. They did pass the ball against this defense. And Joe Burrow, another great day. He averaged 9% above his expected completion percentage, his intended air yards were 10.7, which was second most in the NFL. And he completed 8.8 completed air yards, which is one of the best in the NFL. On the other side of things, Lamar Jackson had a terrible day. His completion percentage was 8.5% below average, which was second worst only to Patrick Mahomes. Um, so he did have high intended air yards. I mean, he was chucking the ball down the field, 14.7 intended air yards. That was the highest of any quarterback in the NFL. His completed air yards of 12.3 was the most in the league. The second best quarterback or second highest quarterback was 9.6. That was Matt Ryan. So Lamar was chucking the ball deeper down the field, um, but just very inaccurate on a lot of those passes, which is more difficult to complete down the field. But uh, all things said and done, I think this was an extremely impressive performance on both sides of the ball from the Cincinnati Bengals. When you go back to that draft, they took a lot of criticism for not taking an offensive lineman, yep. but my God, Chase is an offense changer. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> they listen to their quarterback because you know Joe Burrow stumped for him. Yes, being at course. LSU with him, and of course, holy mackerel! I mean, the one he took, the the one little slant route that he took to the house. I mean, that is. Oh yeah, I they mean, say he's, 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 he's SEC speed, as they say, and he's rock solid. <laughs> like he was breaking down tackles. I mean, oh. really, really impressive. And now the toughest part for Baltimore is they're heading into their bye week off of that loss after that bad taste in their mouth. They come back out of their bye week 
home against the Minnesota Vikings in week nine. So uh, you can expect Mike Zimmer's defense to get a whole lot of uh, creativity dumped on them at that game because there's a lot of frustration uh, for Baltimore right now, limping into the bye week off of that loss. And the Cincinnati Bengals, meanwhile, go and get to take on um, the New York Jets. Uh, so what, what are they? What are they to win to the division right now? Are they still? Are they still long odds to win that division? Because that seems like something that would still, you know, we're, we we got a lot of weeks left in the season. But if you really believe in the Bengals, there's no telling. At the beginning of the year, they had to be just a monster long shot to win that division. I mean, who had them ahead of any of the three teams? Yeah, what were they? Only six and a half wins, and there was some discussion, like in some of the sharper groups, about betting the under in the Cincinnati Bengals. Wow! And I basically was like, "We can't do that, guys. Like, we can't do that." I, I didn't love betting the over, but I prevented anybody from betting <laughs> the under on the Bengals. I, 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 I felt like this team could be scary enough, dangerous enough, have enough upside where you wouldn't want to do that. Um, and so thankfully, I mean, that probably would have been one of the worst win total bets that anybody could have made um, on the season, at least through week seven, you know, like looking at what the results are currently and how close you are to losing a win total bet um, other than maybe betting the over on a Chiefs future or something, even though so there's a lot they, of So what left. are they now? What they are, are they plus now? 250 to win the division. The Ravens are still minus 110. The Bengals have moved into second place, but you can still get them for plus 250. Uh, but they right now are seated number one in the conference uh, in terms of the, if, if the season ended right now, the Cincinnati Bengals would have the number one overall seed in the AFC, and yet they are still plus 1,600 to win the conference. They're 16 to one underdogs right now. And you've got in front of them, the Buffalo Bills, the Baltimore Ravens, the Kansas City Chiefs, the Tennessee Titans, the LA Chargers, and the Cleveland Browns. So all of those teams are still ahead of, they have shorter odds than do the Cincinnati Bengals. Okay, which is crazy. So, So they have hopped Cleveland. In terms of the odds, I mean, look, Cleveland's four and three, so there's a game separating the two teams. Yes, not that it's not that big of a deal. But well, they get Cleveland. They get Cleveland. Their first game against Cleveland is the week after the Jets, and the, that game is in Cincinnati, and it's going to be without Baker Mayfield. So it makes perfect sense that uh, Cincinnati should be ahead of Cleveland okay. right now because no, no, Baker no. I, I'm saying odds wise in terms of the to win the division, they've yes. them. Yes. Wow. Well, that and, and that's why that's why I mean. But like I've said, they haven't played uh, the Cleveland Browns yet this year, so they still got two games against them. Cleveland's going to be without Baker Mayfield, um, yeah. and Cincinnati has got the Jets next week. It'll be a huge game uh, the the week uh, week nine at home for Cincinnati against the Cleveland Browns. Uh, but yeah, it's it's um, okay. None, none of these division leaders are, especially in the NFC. Um, if if you want to say Dallas being five and one could surprise some people, but we, you know, Arizona being seven and zero is probably the most surprising. The rest of them, you could foresee it in terms of the AFC, the Bengals, and then the other thing we got to mention is Vegas. The Raiders lost their coach two weeks ago, and now that's two really impressive wins in a row. For the Raiders, maybe they just need to get rid of John Gruden. I don't know. Um, but yesterday, 
you know, they're uh they're a one point favorite. It's a it's a double digit margin uh in the end, but that is in large part to you know, they're up thirty to seven in that game. The Eagles scored fifteen late points. They scored fifteen points in the fourth quarter. Um what do we make of what the Raiders not only did yesterday where they're up thirty to seven on the Eagles, but that is that's coming off uh, the week before where we thought it could be like a rally the troops game possibly, or it could be a big distraction game possibly, but a double digit win against Denver. It's, it's like they had that, they had that rough win or rough loss uh, by a couple of touchdowns to the chargers. Then they got beat in that Chicago game by double digits. And now they've turned around they win at Denver and then they smoked Philly yesterday, and they go into a bye week sitting at five and two at the top of that division. What do I make of the Raiders? Yeah, look, the Raiders are going into their bye week off of uh, a couple of straight wins. You you have the John Gruden game where there was a lot of distractions and they lose to the Bears, which seems crazy right now thinking about their last couple of wins and then what the Bears have done. And, yep. and meanwhile, the Raiders lose to the Bears, but... That's the NFL this year. There's a lot of different crazy things that are happening. That game, that game, the Eagles get up seven and nothing, and it just isn't even close after that point in time. Um, the Eagles actually modified some of their strategies. They tried to run the football a little bit more, and they did have some success. I mean, Miles Sanders, before he left the game, was averaging five yards per carry. The Eagles were going a little bit more run heavy in that game, uh, especially compared to some of their games in the past where they were going up against good run defenses and just weren't running the ball. But the the main issue here, to me at least, was the lack of defensive line presence of the – well, aside from Jalen Hurts not having a good game for another game in a row. But the main issue here was – the defensive line of the Eagles doing absolutely nothing to limit whatever the Raiders wanted to do offensively. The Raiders are a pass-first team. They're the third most pass-heavy team in the NFL. They like to throw the ball over the top, have explosive big gains, and the Eagles' defense is built to limit those explosive gains and to keep everything in front of them and make you dink and dunk your way down the field and make you try to run the football. Um, But the problem was the Raiders basically said, Okay, fine. We'll run the football a little bit. We're not going to go crazy running the football. They average Jacobs averaged 4.8 yards per carry. Then Drake, because Jacobs got hurt, Drake comes in. He averages 4.9 yards per carry. They're able to run the football on the Eagles defensive line, and they can't get any pressure on Derek Carr. And Derek Carr only has, I think, in the entire first half, he only had one incompletion, if I'm not mistaken, which was an interception. He finishes the game. 31 completions on 34 passing attempts. Everything was this short underneath stuff, except for, I think, one deeper pass that gained uh, 43 yards to to Jones. But other than that, it was a lot of short stuff, and the Eagles just weren't getting pressure on him, and he was having time to survey the defense, find the holes in that that zone, and just complete these passes. So um, I think it's interesting. I think like Carr and the players themselves have taken some of this upon themselves to come out and game plan for these games and figure out what they want to do and play to their strengths. Um, It's been extremely impressive after your play caller, which what was Gruden known for, right? It was making mistakes from the personnel side of the ball, but being a decent tactician and game planner. And those were the edges that he brought to the table. And 
for two straight games now without him, we've seen this offense perform really well. And I don't know exactly how the play calling is is going and who's really doing a lot of the game planning, but my gut tells me that Derek Carr has been heavily involved in some of that and they've been having a ton of ton of success. So kudos to Derek Carr. I've I've ripped Derek Carr in the past at different times for not wanting to stand in the pocket and bailing out on things too quickly, but he's been balling out the last couple of games. It's been really impressive to watch. Let me ask you, do you update projections as the season goes on? And I say that to ask, do you have a number that you think it's going to take to get to the playoffs in terms of wins? When I'm when I, when I'm looking at all these teams through the prism of their 17 weeks, you're probably going to need X amount of wins, right? So if I say, let's just say that team in the case of the Raiders, I could sit there and I could say, they go five and five. They're, they're probably going to be a playoff team. If they go four and six, now I'm nine and eight. And it might come down to a time. I mean, do you think that that's what we're going to have in terms of, it feels like nine and eight is probably going to get you in the playoffs in the AFC, right? And I've wondered if on the NFC and the AFC side, if you kind of have a target line of how many wins you think it's going to take some of these teams to get there? Um, it's hard to say. I think I think you're definitely going to need, I, I would think that you would need more than nine wins in the AFC to get into the playoffs. I think New England could be coming on here a little bit down the stretch. You've got how many teams have a winning record in the AFC right now? You got the Bills, you got the Ravens, you got the Bengals, you've got the Browns. You've got the Titans, you've got the Raiders, and you got the Chargers. That's seven teams right there with a winning record. And you have the Steelers. They're going to fall back, I think, but they're three and three right now. They're not, they don't have a losing record. And the, the Patriots are one game below 500. So I, I think you're going to be, I, I don't, I don't look at it that way from that prism. I don't say like, okay, well, you're going to need nine wins or 10 wins. But I do think that you're going to need more than nine probably to get into the playoffs on the AFC side. The NFC is totally different. What did I say? There were seven teams with a winning record right now on the AFC. In the NFC, you only have the Cowboys, the uh, Packers, the Bucks, Rams, the Cardinals, Rams, the Cardinals, and 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 the Saints are three and two with one game pending tonight. So there are six teams there with a winning record, but a lot of the other teams aren't even nearly as close, right? Like in the NFC East, everybody's two and five, except for right. the Cowboys. In the NFC West, the division that we thought all these teams could be good, there's two teams that are two and four, and one of them we're about to talk about with the San Francisco 49ers. So like we just, some of these, there's definite have and have nots. And a lot of these teams really are unlikely to get back into the playoff hunt, um, making it less competitive in the NFC. Yeah, you, I just think it's it's interesting to consider that, you know, somebody like we talk about some of these teams with the Bengals and the and the Raiders, for instance, two of the teams that we've talked about so far. Mm-hmm. And they got to go 500 the rest of the way. They're going to be a playoff team. I mean, that's what being 5 and 2 right now has set them up for. You get to 10 and 7, you're going to be there. Right? Yep. And so and all you got to do is go 500 the rest of the way. Well, you got to expect like Will will the Chiefs get things back on track? They're three and four. If they right. make a run, then you may have to do more than just go five hundred. But it's absolutely an interesting way to look at it. I, I, You're I not going to have to have eleven to get in. No way. Not You've with got the, the amount of parity. The, the fun part is the fun part about the AFC, in my opinion, is 
You've got the Chiefs at three and four. You've got the Colts at three and four. And you got the Patriots at three and four. And those teams, you, you think, have the components, if luck goes their way, to really get back into thick of things in the AFC side of it. Um, in the NFC side of it, I don't know. You really don't have that. Like normally you would say the Seahawks, but they don't have rust for, for right. a long while here. Um, I don't really think like the Cardinal, sorry, the, uh, the Carolina Panthers or the Atlanta Falcons have that pedigree to get back in it. Somehow the Bears are still three and four. They don't look like they've got any type of thing to get back into it. And then what are you going to say in the NFC East? Like you got Washington or the Eagles or the Giants. Like these teams are all two and five. Are they really going to get back into it? So there's just not, a, there's more haves and have nots in the NFC. See where um, I think that divi- that conference is a lot less balanced, and you're not going to see these crazy runs from teams that are going to get back into the thick of the playoff race. Whereas in the AFC, you've got a number of really good teams, and then you've got these teams that actually have losing records right now, but really could reel off a nice stretch down the road. Well, it can flip. Um, you know, Carolina started off like a house of fire, and now it's falling apart. Right. I mean, yep. at one point, when we were talking about them a couple of weeks ago, they start off three and oh, defense looks good. And Sam Darnold, hey, look, when he's away from Adam Gase, he's pretty good. And then his ass gets benched yesterday. That's going to start some rapid fire questions that I want to ask you. Regarding like a Darnold, um, we'll see with Hurts. They've got a weak opponent this week, so they probably rock with him again. But in when it's somebody like that, like if they just said, you know what, Sam Darnold is not going to be the quarterback uh, in our next game. It's going to be PJ Walker, uh, former XFL star. Um, does that does that move the line? Does that does, does even? Ma- I mean, if if it if it's a if it's a quarterback that's playing terrible, you know, I, I've wondered this. Somebody like Jalen Hurts, if they said next week, Garner Minshew is going to start. I got to be honest, I'd be more likely to bet the Eagles. If they said P.J. Walker's going to start, I'm probably more likely to bet Carolina. Like, it's these odd situations where some of these teams, if they replace their quarterback, I feel like I'd probably be more likely to ride with them. But does that affect things? It does. It does. I mean, every the the odds makers are going to make adjustments depending upon who the starting quarterback is. But you're absolutely right with regard to a guy's not playing really well, has fallen all out of favor with his team and with the betting public, and now they're making a change. What is the perceived downgrade here? And that all is going to be factored in. Um, Gardner Minshew uh, does have a reputation of having started. I and looking at like some of the numbers guys are going to look at his statistics and say, well, actually, he he hasn't been that bad. Like the Jaguars around him were terrible, but he himself has performed above expectations in certain situations. Um, and of course, they also have Joe Flacco on the on yep. the Eagles too. So they got a couple of different options that they could go to. Um, I don't really know what the benefit would be for them unless they really like wanted to bench Hurts uh, from a performance perspective. Like there's, there's, it's different with Sam Darnold. Like, with well, Sam- I think they, I think they only would right if they get beat by the Lions this week. The era, the Hurts era is done. If they lose to the Lions, I promise you, he will not start the next week they play. The Lions game is going to be fascinating this week against the Eagles, and the reason why is this. You can absolutely expect the Lions to pull out just like they did last week 
like all the tricks in the book. Empty the chamber. They are a winless team right now. You mean and- they might have Jared Goff throw the ball seven yards in the air? <laughs> all the what do you mean they're unload? Like he throws the ball one foot. They are they are heading into a bye week. And after their bye week, they've got the Steelers. Then they've got the uh, Cleveland Browns, both of which games are on the road. Then they do have the Bears at home. There are a couple of games that they could win down the stretch if they don't beat the Eagles here, but they're going to pull out all the stops. Now, the interesting element to the game against the uh, Rams last week is oftentimes when teams are perceived perceive themselves and some teams actually look at the betting spreads to see like kind of who this opponent is other times when you're going up against the Rams you don't really need to look at the fact that you're catching over 15 points like you kind of know you're massively outclassed here you are going to come into that game thinking I got to do everything from the jump I got to do fake punts onside kicks everything that it takes from the jump of this game to try to gain extra possessions whereas when you're only a three-point underdog you may be like, look, as long as we don't make some mistakes, maybe we can be in this game. Maybe we don't need to do all the craziness that we did last week uh, to be in this game. So it's going to be interesting, the perspective that Dan Campbell approaches this game with, but you never know what he could end up doing here uh, from a desperation perspective, from a play calling uh, perspective. But getting back, we're going down a rabbit hole, getting yeah. back to your uh, Sam Darnold issue. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think... Sam Darnold is perceived as the better quarterback than P.J. Walker. So if they stick P.J. Walker in, the line will probably decrease. Right now, the uh, Carolina Panthers are catching two and a half points on the road against the Atlanta Falcons. If they announce that Sam Darnold is benched and P.J. Walker is starting, I bet that line obviously goes to three points. But the question that you would ask yourself as a better, or, or potentially beyond that, but the question you would ask yourself as a better, let's say it got to three and a half. Would you rather bet Sam Darnold catching two and a half or PJ Walker catching three and a half, right? You're going to have a better number with a different quarterback who you might think is not that big of a drop off. And now you're flipping to the other side of a key number. So those are questions that the betting public would end up making for themselves. Um, and there are absolutely certain times when it is plus EV to hope that a different QB is in there and then just take the points with the perceived worst quarterback because the guy who's number one just isn't getting it done. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, P.J. Walker, um, who was, he played for the uh, Houston Roughnecks and he was, you know, when they had that XFL season, he was, he became the first player, XFL player to reach a deal uh, with an NFL team. And he was, he was awesome uh, in that league for sure. Uh, but we haven't seen him, you know, we haven't seen him much. He, he only played in five games that rough next year. Um, and now, you know, I don't know if you're Matt rule. Jeez. I mean, it's just gone the wrong way with Darnold fast. He was pathetic yesterday. Warren. I mean, pathetic. <laughs> so bad <laughs> against a giant against a giant. He couldn't do anything. They couldn't do anything. It was bizarre you want to know what his completed air yards was <laughs> take a guess to. take a guess uh you mean for the whole game for the whole game overall on average when he threw a pass and it was caught what was the average target depth how deep were these passes being caught beyond the line of scrimmage what was the average you think five yards 1.7 <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> no, it wasn't. It was what? not one the point. Worst, it the was worst, not one point seven. The worst in the NFL. His intended air yards. His intended air yards wasn't even five. His intended air yards was four point six. You talked about Goff not throwing the ball down the field, and you were right because Goff's intended air yards were only four point three. That's his average target depth. How far is he trying to throw the ball to his targets? Uh, Darnold was a little bit better than that, but only at 4.6, second lowest in the NFL. But completed air yards, Darnold was only 1.7. Pathetic. Wow, that's unbelievable. Yeah, and I, I do I do just want to also mention, and this is because, you know, I, I, I have a very high opinion of Matt Rule because I covered him years ago when he was in the AAC uh, coaching Temple. Yep. P.J. Walker's a Temple quarterback. You know what I mean? Like, if you got there, there, there's a different. It's a different deal. It's a different deal. That's why I brought that one up. It would not shock me if Rule ends yeah. up with a, a guy that he has a level of trust. I mean, PJ Walker won a damn AAC championship with Temple. Temple Temple was good there for a minute, and he holds every record at Temple for for passing. Um, and of course, that's where Rule came from before he was at Baylor. Um, all right, uh, uh, one other thing before we get out of here. Do you think any of these coaches need to worry? We're going to get to that point of the season. We know well, like Urban Meyer feels like he's through the woods on his thing. Um, Gruden's already been kicked out for something non-football related, but football-related stuff. Do you think any of these owners, general managers, et cetera, you get to, as soon as you start losing a bunch of games, or you are below expectation, that's when finger pointing starts. So then you figure out, does a quarterback get benched? Does an offensive coordinator uh, get fired? That's usually what you get to do the first time around. And then it comes down to you. Um, And you got two. You got the Dolphins, who just cannot win a game. And we all really liked how much fight Flores' teams showed um, these last couple years when it felt like they were tanking but he was winning games um, and they can't win a game at all. And so I have wondered if Flores start to get worried. And I say that because I was watching that game Tua goes down, leads them to a touchdown. Of course they give up the one, as we mentioned earlier to Pitts and Falcons late and lose again. He, he looks like he looks like a guy under a lot of pressure to me. On the side. Who's out? Flores? Flores, yeah, yeah, yeah. He wasn't like he looked he looked very, very frustrated, angry, despondent, you know, all of those things. And you could tell, obviously, look, the more you lose, and and you're not you're not going nine and what what did we say? If it takes a number, nine and one <laughs> the rest of the way. Right? I mean, this is you got Buffalo coming up. You got Buffalo coming up next week, friends. And and Buffalo's offense has owned this Dolphins defense. I think that's the biggest shocker to me, uh, Chris. We we saw the Dolphins and their defense from last season, and we thought they might be able to build upon that and take a stepping stone. And they've completely fallen off the rails here defensively. This is one of the worst defenses in the NFL. They're one of the worst against the pass. Um, you you saw what they were doing last week. Uh, um, I love Kyle Pitts, but I mean, in some of those catches were absolutely impressive, but like there are also times when he or other Falcons were just wide open running in the secondary. And, and this is the problem with a defensive minded head coach. And I've said this before, I'll say it again. If you bring a guy in to be your head coach 
and he's on the defensive side of the football, A, you better make sure that he's not interfering with the offense whatsoever because I don't want the offense's mindset to be tainted at all by conservatism or what this defensive coordinator, former defense coordinator, uh, wants uh, offense that he's opposite of to be doing. And number two, his side of the ball better be damn good. If you got a defensive head coach there, you better have a defensive a defense that's playing really well. And right now, his defense is not. Now, I don't think that they're going to go and fire Brian Flores. I think that Brian Flores, I don't want to say he could get it turned around this year. I think this is a bigger problem that like their GMs and like their whole organization needs to be more concerned about because think about all the assets that this rebuild has had all the capital from the draft that they've had, all the opportunities to take players that should be one year, two years down into this thing that could be strong enough to perform. And they're just not. Like the combination of everything is not getting it done. They go out and go for Tua. He's not getting it done. Like right now, this team overall, it's not just oh, well, Brian Flores is a bad coach. Whereas if you look at a coach like a Matt Nagy, right? I think there is a lot easier to place blame. Like Matt Nagy, you need to reevaluate what it is you are doing. Um, With the Dolphins, this was like a a rebuild. And you can place blame on the quarterback and you can place blame on players defensively that aren't playing well. And you can place blame on the offensive line. You can place blame on the organization. Like, there's so many places to place blame on with this whole rebuild and the philosophy that they've had that I don't know that I don't think Brian Flores is getting fired. I really, I, really I, don't. I watched that I watched that game yesterday. I have no idea why people are so down on Tua. I, I don't get it. Watch him. He puts the ball on everybody. He may he makes a little extra plays, but he's playing, you know, what? He's made less than 30 starts in his NFL career. Like, he makes some goofy plays every once in a while. Um, He threw one that could have gotten intercepted by three guys. He made one where he's trying to make a play while he's getting killed. Other than that, I mean, he moves a ball down the field. He's got a great connection with Waddle. Great connection with Waddle. And... I don't under I don't understand. I I don't I don't get it. I watch him. I watch all kinds of crampy quarterbacks. He is they, they, they you know it's, I get the Deshaun Watson thing hanging out there. I get that they won some games with Fitzmagic last year weirdly, but I don't know. I feel like and and people can go look at his numbers in the amount of starts he's had. Like I, the 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 narrative on him being bad is bizarre to me. He's not bad. I I will just say this. Players, oftentimes, that are kind of borderline, need pieces around them. And it's not just an offensive line. It's also a coaching staff. Um, It's a play caller to have some semblance of success. In this last game, Tua's completion percentage above expectation was 11.9. That was second, sorry, third best in the NFL yesterday. Third best completion percentage above expectation in the NFL, ahead of Joe Burrow, ahead of Aaron Rodgers. Okay, he performed well overall, but made some bonehead mistakes, and it, it's reminiscent a little bit of what Carson Wentz did sometimes back in Philadelphia, right? Where y- you would see some flashes, and then you see like this terrible mistakes. You're like, what is this guy doing? And Carson Wentz was playing behind a shit offensive line, and he was playing with like sometimes terrible wide receivers because everybody got injured. Like there were so many injuries there that was affecting that team. You look at Tua, 
Oh, and he also no. lost his offensive coordinator. Right. And the hard part about Tua is this. Coaching, we said that could cause problems. Look at those offensive coordinators. First of all, two years ago, it's Chan Gailey, like a guy who comes out of retirement to coach an offense for a, a Ryan Fitzpatrick, who then does not make any changes when Tua gets inserted into that lineup. That's Tua's rookie year. This past year, who even is the offensive coordinator calling these plays? They got co-offense coordinators. Um, uh, their coach doesn't tell us who exactly is running the show over there, which means you got two, you got none, right? Is the old saying with quarterbacks, but it could be the same as with offensive coordinators. I don't know who's calling the show. They at least are throwing the ball on early downs and doing some plus EV things from that respect. But um, then you look at that offensive line, the offensive line hasn't been very good either. So there's these similar parallel a little bit with the situation that Carson Wentz was put into. And then what do we see now when Carson Wentz goes to Indy? And obviously they played some very difficult defenses to start the season and he was dealing with an injury as well. But we're seeing a little bit better Carson Wentz with Frank Wright calling his plays with a great offensive line, at who which was banged up early to start the year, and with a run game to help support so that Carson doesn't have to do everything. And, you know, Tua in a different situation, maybe he could be a slightly above average quarterback. I don't ever think he's going to live up to his draft spot, but I think that c- could he ever be a capable offensive quarterback in the league as long as you don't give him a massive contract and aren't like impeded by uh, what you're paying the guy? Maybe. He's not going to get you to a Super Bowl, but he's probably... I think it's too early to know. Yeah, it's too I mean... Early. I, I'm a, I'm a big, I'm a big, I was buying on Tua after last season with everything that surrounded that year. And I was expecting a bigger step forward this year. So I had high expectations and I've been a little disappointed overall, but I do agree that a lot of people that have just completely kicked this guy out the door, like there are flashes of things that he absolutely can do. He has started 11 games, 11 games. In those 11 games, he's 7-4 and four with a 63% completion percentage with 12 touchdowns and 6 picks. I, mean, I want to see I want to see him with a real <laughs> I mean, I with a real with a real OC and that's the other problem with Brian Flores is like every single year he seems to be rotating through different offensive coordinators. Like what 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 is going on here? Why can't yeah. we actually go out and recruit a capable offensive coordinator? Well, to lead this team. Well, speaking of offensive coordinators and perception being different than reality, uh, last thing we'll get to is Kyle Shanahan. They take a loss last night. Kyle Shanahan records as the 49ers coach. And they always have excuses for why. 6-10, and 4-12. and 13-3 made the Super Bowl. 6-10. and 10, And now they're sitting at 2-4. and four. You had that story that came out. Adam Schefter, who... Started reporting in Denver years and years ago. So you'd imagine he knows the Shanahan's better than everyone. If people want to put the pieces together, it's not hard to figure it out. Um, He was all spring saying they're taking Mac Jones. They're trading up to get Mac Jones. Like, where do you think Adam Schefter? If you just want to, I'm not, you don't have to be a genius here. Connect the dots. Who would Schefter know the best? The Shanahan's. And then later on, Schefter, just to correct the record without saying what he was saying, Todd McShay reported on this, that there was, a, you know, and I don't want to say infighting, but internal debate. 
right? They were all going to take Mac Jones. Schefter said they traded up to three to take Mac Jones because they thought the Patriots were going to get him. And that's why they went up there. So then they get up to three. They start doing all the evaluations. They do the pro days. They do the interviews or whatever else. And a contingent of the 49ers falls in love with Trey Lance. They end up taking Trey Lance. And there's a lot of people that were connected on the Shanahan side that all said they were taking Mac Jones. And so I, I sit there and think this. The record's not very good. And then you have this whole, just put the pieces together. I, I'm not, I, I, he did not, he wanted Mac Jones. I'm not putting together all kinds of uh, – there's a lot of people that have said that. There's a lot of people that have reported around that. But you don't have to be a genius to you know, put the pieces together on this. And so I just look at it and say, if the guy doesn't, wasn't in love with Mac uh, – wasn't in love with the drafting of Trey Lance in the first place, and this is going to be, what, four out of five years with a losing record if this continues? I don't know, man. You think Kyle Shanahan needs to worry? Um, well, the problem is that would be like an ownership thing because the GM's obviously not going to fire him. Uh, I don't think John, but he and John Lynch are so closely knit there. But I will say, I mean, I identified it a little while ago. Uh, Kyle Shanahan has, he has had success when he's had one of his guys at quarterback but he's rotated through a lot of other guys and has not won with anybody else. Like he has not really taken a okay quarterback, like the slightly below average and, and, and won despite the quarterback, what he's been able to do. And I guess you could say that about Jimmy G maybe, I guess like they went out and yeah, got they Jimmy G. They paid, him yeah. a bunch. they paid Jimmy G a bunch of money. Like they went out and Th- this was a top asset of theirs. They obviously thought highly of Jimmy G. Um, obviously, Kyle goes to the Super Bowl with Matt Ryan. Again, a highly paid franchise quarterback. So you could argue, oh, well, the, the performance of Matt Ryan isn't as-, as supremely elite and the performance of Jimmy G is supremely elite. But if you look at their what those guys are being paid and how they're viewed in the prism of like the league, okay, these are these are semi-franchise caliber paid quarterbacks, all right? Let's just leave it at that. Forget their performance. Those are the guys that Kyle has had to have in order to be successful. If he doesn't have those guys, not successful. The the issue with Kyle is I get the sense that he's obviously a much better play caller than he is head coach. And some guys are like that. And on both sides of the ball, maybe it's Brian Flores, maybe it's Kyle Shanahan. It's that's not a knock. Like I am of the belief that if you find a great play caller like Atlanta had with Kyle Shanahan, you pay him whatever it takes to keep him as your play caller and you don't let him leave to go get a head coaching job. Now, a lot of these guys are going to want to get the head coaching job, not just for the salary increase, but for what it does for their ego and what it does for them in the history annals of the NFL. Like I was a head coach. I wasn't just an office coordinator. So there's a lot of pride attached to it and I can't fault them for that, right? But the moves that Kyle has made offensively, like I've identified this running back, we should trade up to go get him in the draft, or I want to go after this player. Like They don't work out. They have not worked out in the draft. He has not been good when it comes to that. He's been much better at just calling an offense. And this season, obviously, they had a lot of injuries that they were working with and they've struggled. But overall, he's been an 
absolute disappointment. I 100% agree. That's fascinating because you uh, you wonder if they've looked at their offensive guys that they've drafted. Debo Samuel's the best one, right? If you look at the offensive guys that they drafted, and that's part of the reason that there was a break in the action between, like, yo, man, we've listened to you over and over. Like, talent evaluation isn't your thing. Let the talent evaluators do the talent evaluation. I will, I will just say that uh, I know you 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 laid out the story and the way that it flows with regard to the Trey Lance thing and 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 Kyle not actually wanting him but actually wanting Mac Jones and I still can't get my head around that I still don't understand how it could be possible that a guy who's your head coach who's also calling your offense would trade multiple ones to go up and draft a quarterback that he's now going to have to call the plays for he's now going to have to design the entire offense for. That he does not want at all. Because franchise quarterbacks are for 10 years. Head coaches are not. How many head coaches keep jobs 10 years? You don't draft with your head. I mean, you know what I'm saying? Unless you are sure. And and how can you? How, I, I don't know. I, I wouldn't be drafting a quarterback. I know that everybody's in love with Kyle Shanahan. But he's 6-10, and 4-12, and 13-3, and 6-10. and 10. I mean... They, I agree. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not, not, make, I'm not making that decision based on my head coach. I'm sorry. I'm I'm on your side here as it relates to that. I am just a little bit like you have to change so much if you're going to be utilizing Trey Lance. And it's just crazy that Kyle would have said, I absolutely don't want Trey Lance. I absolutely want Mac Jones because they're totally different. I don't think that's true. I think it's a preference thing. You know what I'm saying? I I also think it's just crazy that you go up that high um, and not know which guy you're going to get, right? Because if the story is true, they traded up that high and then we're still internally discussing which guy they wanted to get. And, you know, certain guys, you would not have to trade up to three overall potentially to go and get. Um, So it is crazy how that thing worked out. I don't know if we'll find out the truth there, but I think they give your Kyle Shanahan. You're probably saying, "Oh, you don't like my two and four record? Well, I wouldn't be two and four if you drafted Mac Jones." <laughs> well, he's not going to. Unfortunately, he's he could be saying that, but it's water no. under the bridge for him uh, if that's the case. I mean, All right. uh, and uh, real, real quick, any overarching thought on what is not a great Monday Night Football game? Seattle versus uh, the Saints. Yeah, it it is definitely not a good uh, game. Look, the bottom line here is you've got a team in the Saints that wants to try to run the football and do as little as possible with their quarterback. And they're coming off of a bye. What do they have cooked up here offensively? What was Sean Payton working on when he finally got a chance to see what Jameis Winston was going to do in real, you know, when the live bullets were being fired? How is he going to perform? What's he going to excel at? What tweaks are they going to make here to try to perform a little bit better? Um, And you got on the other side, Geno Smith, which we saw the adjustment Seattle made at halftime. Pete Carroll actually goes on national TV and says, we got to run the football in the second half, even though they're getting their butts kicked in the first half and are losing. And what do they do? They come back and they run the football and they almost win that game. You must assume that they're going to come out in the second, in the first uh, half of Geno's second start and want to run the football because that's what got them back in the game last week. And if that's the case, it could set up for a fair amount of running the, the ball 
which is a big reason why this game took under money from some of the professionals. It was at 43 and a half at one point. It is down to 41 and a half. Uh, the first half also got tagged. That was above 21 or at 21. It's now 20 and a half juice to the under at most spots. So the thought process here is that this game's going to start off with a lot of running from Seattle and the Saints want to run the football as well. Both these teams, like especially the Saints, operate at a pretty slow pace. Um, so I don't know that we're going to see a lot of excitement, um, but hey, we're all going to be watching and tuning in here. From a side perspective, I have no dog in that fight either. I have no real strong lean even. Um, it's, it's, it's a game that really I'm focused more on week eight, and there's some interesting games on the week eight slate uh, and less enticing games tonight, but obviously we'll be watching for sure. I know you're going to be getting to all those as the week goes on with uh, Ben Solak and also Joe House. Warren, I'll talk to you next week. That sounds good. That'll do it for us, Chris. Thank you to everyone for listening. We will be back on Wednesday, as Chris mentioned, with Ben Solak to do a deep dive into the nerdy stuff. Ben will break down the film. I'll have all the data and analytics crunched by that point in time. We're going to share some interesting thoughts and matchups as we approach week eight to get ready for special thanks of course to chris vernon for joining me today and to mike wargon and craig holbrick for producing the show we will see you guys on wednesday